do that. But before I start this, this new sermon and this new series, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been roped into something that you're not really a part of? Like, have you ever been at a restaurant and there's a couple beside you and they're kind of arguing and you're, you're like, you want to kind of know what they're talking about, but you don't want them to know that you want to know what they're talking about. So you're standing close enough, but like not really looking, but kind of like, huh, oh, this is interesting. And somewhere along the line, the guy goes, hey man, what do you think? And you're like, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, yeah, you do. And you, you get roped into something that you don't want to be in because, you, you know, you were just trying to mind your own business, but you weren't. Or like, have you ever been to a, a, like a, a comedian, a comedy show or a magic, I don't know, does anyone go to magic shows? Do you go to a magic show and they pull you up on stage and you were just minding your own business and they're like, hey, come on. I have, a, I have a dual relationship with that. I'm not sure what to do with that. There's a part of me that no matter where I am and I'm watching something, I, I present a lot. So there's a part of me that's always like, hmm, what would I do if I were up there? And so if they're like, do you want to come on stage? I always think, yeah, <laughs> I do, because I'm going to do this better, which is horribly arrogant. So but that's the way my mind works. And I'm like, yeah. And then there's a part of me that's like, oh, you don't want me to come up there because I will do this better than you. Um, so it's bad. I don't think it. But some of you are like that. Some of you are like, man, get me in. I want to be in, coach. Like, put me in. Some of you are like, I do not want to have anything to do with it. My daughter is such that when they ask for volunteers, she doesn't raise her hand. She just walks up because she's pretty sure they want her. <laughs> she's like, no, it'll be, it'll be great. I'm here. So um, anyway, we're starting the story. We're starting the book of Luke, chapter 23, and we're starting with the story of Simon of Cyrene, which is one verse. It's very short. But um, we, we begin the story with Simon minding his own business. And that's kind of how the Holy Spirit works, right? He's minding his own business, and the Holy Spirit goes, I'm going to need you for a little bit of work here. And here's the thing. Um, even if it's not your business, chances are what God is prompting you towards is God's business because it's all God's business. God is in the midst. That's the problem with serving a sovereign God, right? All of this is his business. And God never really stands on the sidelines. That's not something God's super interested in. God is always there. He's always ready. He suffers with us. He laughs with us. And he experiences it all with us. He's not an observer. God is a participant in our lives, right? I mean, sometimes we get the feeling, I don't know what the picture of God is that you have, but you get this feeling that he's kind of looking over the edge of heaven like, man, you guys are really messing that up, right? That's the feeling that we get. The problem is nothing in Scripture says that that's what God does. That's not what we get in Scripture. In fact, the idea that we believe in a Trinitarian God, like the, the idea of three in one, because of the Trinity, we understand that God is present and active, and today it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we should not forget that God is participating actively in our lives, and this should do a few things for us. Knowing that God is actively involved and engaged and participating in our lives should, number one, it should invigorate us, right? It should get us excited. It should be, it should be the fact that we know that there's nothing that we do alone, that God is with us in everything that we do, and it's always better to do something with a partner, right? Have you ever had a partner to work out with? You guys don't work out. How are you living so long? How is that even happening? You, you, I, I've never met a room that's that dead when I ask that question. You guys are literally like, what? <laughs> were you not listening or were you not expecting like to actually? Working out is better with someone. It invigorates you, right? And like you've been in the gym, you've been in the gym and you know those two guys who really like working out, but they really like just yelling and insulting at each other most of the time. That's really what happens. Girls, have you noticed girls don't work out like that? Girls don't insult each other in order to get results. Guys, 
why, why do we hate each other? Why are we so mean? But, but if, you've, if you had a partner and then that partner doesn't work out with you anymore, you know it's really hard to get motivated. Knowing that God is investing and invigorating in our lives should invigorate us, right? Knowing that he's a participant. The second thing that it should do is it probably should caution us a little bit. Because we know that since we're not doing this alone and we're going along and doing this with God, it should give us caution to the way that we express who God is to the world right? We should, it should give us not pause, but thoughtfulness. A Christian life should be a thoughtful life, at least. And the last thing it should do is it should embolden us. It should give us strength and courage when we don't have it. It should fill some gaps of competency to His calling that He's given on our lives. So that's a lot. Now let's jump into the text. We're reading from Luke chapter 23, verse 26 is where we start. And it begins like this. Let me give you just a little bit of background. Jesus has been captured. He had been through the trial with Pontius Pilate. The the crowd has cried for Barabbas to be freed and to execute and crucify Jesus. And he has been beaten. He has been whipped. He is now carrying his cross. And he probably would have, um, I think it's called the parabolum, he would have um, carried the crossbeam of the cross. They're taking him out of the city because you don't execute somebody in the city. You crucify someone outside the city, probably at a crossroads because you want to make an example of someone when you crucify them. So Jesus is carrying his cross, and we see what happens as they led Jesus away. A man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made, it carry, made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, it says he was from Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa, eastern Libya area. And, um, and they say that there was probably a, a community of about 100,000 Jews in Cyrene at the time. It's a pretty significant Jewish population. And because of what's happening in Jerusalem in the festival days, we see them coming to Jerusalem. And so because of the time of the day that we think it was, Simon was just kind of walking in, um, probably not coming from work. And at some point he gets pulled in. Now let's ask the question, why Simon? Why Simon, right? I don't know what picture you have. It's amazing our, the way that we think about God, the way that we think about these characters, the way that we think about a lot in life has a lot to do with what we were exposed to when we were young. And chances are this story, you are exposed to Simon and Simon's like kind of like yoked, right? He's kind of buff when you see Simon. And it's unfortunate because you see Simon as being like a crossfitter, but not like a new crossfitter, right? Because a new crossfitter looks like this. Uh-huh. God, I can't move. But like a hardened CrossFitter, like somebody who does this and is like, and like eats nails and that sort of thing. You guys know who you are. You're impressive. You're impressive specimens. You're going to die early because your muscles are too, you know, tight all the time. But um, I think, I don't know if it works that way. Is that good science? I don't know. But um, that's what we kind of get the picture of. That's the picture we get of Simon. And the picture we get of Jesus, unfortunately at times, is like this very kind of soy latte, you know, vegan, like, oh, I don't. And I don't think that's fair. I don't. I don't think that's fair because, first of all, he went through a whole lot. He's just exhausted, right? He had been through a lot. He'd been up all night. They had beaten him. They had whipped him. None of us have experienced that. That's horrible. We get tired. We get tired like when we shop for too long and the bags are too heavy. We're like, oh, can you take this to the car? I don't know if I can carry it anymore. It's like it's three pairs of socks. Like, you can carry it. But, but um, so unfortunately, that's kind of the look that we get. We actually have no idea what Simon looks like. We don't know that he was necessarily buff or anything. What we know is that he was called and he was pulled in. And we know that he did it. We don't know much about him. And that's kind of the end of the story of Simon that we see in Luke, at least in this portion. 
right? And so it moves on, and we move on to a very interesting section of this Scripture. And this is Jesus as He's moving on His way to the cross. A large crowd trailed behind Him, including many grief-stricken women. Now, um, these could have been paid mourners. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that there were paid mourners. And I made a little fun of it that that was a horrible job, but actually they served a pretty important function, probably twofold. One was kind of a socioeconomic function. The more mourners that you had at the graveside, the more clout you had in the community. So that's one part of it. The second part, and this is more important, and I was reminded by one of our congregants afterwards, um, they, they served as grief therapists at time because they were around this a lot. And, and by the way, this still happens. You know that. There are still paid mourners. There are still professional grievers. In fact, in Arlington National Cemetery, there are people who are paid to be at funerals. And one of the reasons why is because the United States government has made a commitment to its armed forces that no soldier will be buried alone. And so there will be people who will be there even if they don't know the soldier. And some are paid, some are not. Some just make it kind of their life's calling. And so, um, so this, this group of women could have been, could have been um, paid. But, but also the picture that we get through the trial of Jesus is that everyone was against him, and that wouldn't have been true. So this very well may have been people who were choosing to follow Jesus as well. I, I can't think about mourning without quoting the scripture in Revelation. I think it's really important. Anytime you see people who are mourning, you have to remember this. There's a promise in scripture, Revelation 21.4, that says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things will be gone forever. So if you find yourself in the midst of mourning, in the midst of lamenting, remember that there's a promise that God gives us that this is a temporary thing and eventually we'll have no more mourning, no more sorrow, and no more pain. And so that's just a wonderful promise. But I want to ask you a question um, that, that the previous text kind of, I don't know, awakened within me. And it's a question that we're going to ask a lot through these next seven weeks. And the question is this, why do you follow Jesus? Right? The text says that these people were following behind Jesus. But why do you follow Jesus? I want you to think about this over the course of the series. Because why do you do it? Do you have it? You just come to church. You've been coming to church for a long time, and that's what you're supposed to do. Do you do it because your parents did it, and they made you do it, and now you're an adult, and it makes sense to you that you do it? It's part of your culture. It's part of who you are. The truth is, if it's not yours, it's not real. And this may push some of you a little bit. Church can't be a habit. This life of faith can't be a habit. It has to be a response to what God has done. The Christian life is not something that we fall into. It's something that we choose. And if you haven't chosen it, it's not yours. And if it's not yours, it's not real. And I got to tell you, that must be exhausting for you. To constantly run in circles and say things that you don't believe or go through processes that just don't mean anything to you. I'm sorry, that's hard. Don't do that. You don't have to do that anymore. Because the one thing that we have to be in front of God is authentic and honest. Because He already knows our hearts. And if this is something that you're just play acting at, man, it's a lot of work. You don't have to. I release you. I have no power, but I release you. <laughs> honestly, be, honestly, because that's exhausting to play at something that you don't believe. So I'm asking this question. I'm asking it for, for, for the reals. Why do you follow Jesus? Because Jesus doesn't always make it easy to follow him. In fact, there were these women that were following Jesus, and they're mourning, they're, they're lamenting because he's going to the cross. He's going to die and Jesus turns around to them in verse 28. He turns around to them and he goes, daughters of Jerusalem, 
And by the way, the moment he says daughters of Jerusalem, everybody in the crowd would have known he's about to speak prophetically. Because this is a language that they used in the Old Testament, the prophets used when they were calling out people in Jerusalem, daughters of Jerusalem. So he says this, and then he goes, hey, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. Now this seems kind of antagonistic, doesn't it? He, Jesus is, you know, they've taken off his cross. They've given it to Simon. He's walking. These people are lamenting. He turns around and he says, hey, daughters, don't cry for me. Don't weep for me. You need to weep for yourselves. And by the way, if you're going to weep for yourselves, weep for your children. And this is Jesus speaking prophetically. And by the way, we need to talk about prophecy for a little bit. Every time we mention it, I try and remind you of this. Prophecy is not future telling. Prophecy is trajectory. It's about direction, right? When a group of people, where a group of people are going, a prophet speaks to that and says, you're here, but you could end up there. You need to watch yourselves. You need to check yourselves. It's important that you understand this. Prophecy is not a crystal ball. Prophecy is a compass. It tells you where you're headed. By the way, we've, some of us have been involved in prophetic conversations. I don't know if you know this, um, but have you ever been stopped by a police officer? And they knock on your window and you roll down the window and they go, do you know how fast you're going? That's a prophetic conversation. It is. It is. And you're like, no, it's not. It is. Let me tell you why. Let me explain it to you. All right. It's a prophetic conversation because first of all, if you're going like 37 and a 35, nobody's stopping you. Nobody's asking you that question. Do you know how fast you're going? You're going two miles over the speed limit. Because if they did that, you'd be like, why did you stop me? Two miles. You could be wrong. Right? It's always when you're doing something that's almost reckless. And, the, and the, the, the police officer is usually a little fired up, and they walk up, and they knock on the window. If you're smart, you've rolled the window down already. But, you know, if you haven't, they knock on the window, you roll the window down. Roll the window. No one has ever rolled the window down in the last 25 years like that. But I still use it because that's how I grew up. You roll the window down. That's just me now looking for the button because I'm not sure where it is probably. Anyway, you roll the window down, they look at you and they go, do you know how fast you were going? What they're actually saying is, do you have any idea what was about to happen because of the way that you were driving? Where you are now is a problem because it's sending you in a direction that will cause major, major issues. That question is prophetic. It's prophetic in that if you don't check yourself, you're going to kill people. Do you know how fast you're going? That's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus turns around and he says, don't cry for me. You should cry for yourself. Jesus was speaking to the women, telling them that they're missing the point. You're crying for me, but you don't even know what you should be crying for. And by the way, our faith journey is often an adventure in missing the point, isn't it? We often don't really understand what's going on around us. How often have you missed the point of what Jesus was trying to show you? But don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. I, Listen, I often and sometimes and it seems like always miss the point. So how do we not do that? A couple of ways, a few ways. The first thing you have to do is you got to pay attention. And that seems obvious, I know. But we don't pay attention to what's actually happening in our lives. The tyranny of the urgent often has us worried about what's next and what's missing, but not what is now. If love is paying attention, then we need to be present in the moment. If we don't pay attention, especially when we hear words from God, especially when we hear those prophetic words from God, even as we read them in Scripture, we need to pay attention to what's going on. But the second thing you've got to do is you've got to reflect on how you got there, right? That question, 
Do you know how fast you were going? That's a question that asks you to, to reflect on how you got to where you're going. I used to deliver depositions for my mom. She was a court reporter and she had her own business. And so we had these, um, we had these verbatim transcripts that she would make and I would take them to lawyers' offices. I did it from the time I was 16 to about 22 when I got graduated from college. Every single day I would do this in the afternoon and it became so rote what I was doing. Is I would drive from Riverside to San Bernardino and I would show up at a lawyer's office and realize I don't know how I got here. I don't even know. I was so not present in the moment and now I'm looking back to see how I drove there. I don't know how I got there. It was like a dream. That's because I was just, you know, doing other things and not paying attention. But we need to reflect on how we got there. Because how we got there has a lot to do with where we're going. And if we're not paying attention to that, and that's what it does, reflecting on how you got here helps us reflect on where we're going. Do you know how fast you're going? No, officer, I didn't know how fast I was going because I wasn't paying attention. And yeah, that's the problem. You weren't paying attention. You were going to kill people. I've had that conversation a few times. But if you pay attention, if you think about where you've been and you think about where you're going, all of a sudden you're now here, you're present. And if somebody is giving you those prophetic words as we're reading right now in Scripture, all of a sudden we're learning something and we're becoming a different kind of people. Jesus continues on in verse 29. He says, For the days are coming when they will say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless. Nobody says that. And the wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. This is tough language because the greatest thing a woman could be at the time was a mother. And to not be a mother, you are considered cursed. And what he's saying is the cursed will be blessed. That's how bad things are going to get. And, and, and you know that what he's speaking of. He's speaking of the diaspora. He's speaking of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD under the reign of Domitian. And from that moment on, the Jews were pushed out into the world. Again, it's called the diaspora, the dispersion. They did not have a homeland from then until after World War II. They were sent out. And Jesus is telling them, you think it's bad now? It's going to get way worse. And if you know the story of, of the Jewish nation, you understand that the story started way back in Genesis when they had land. And then through, you know, they were, they were taken out of the land and taken to Egypt. And it feels like the rest of the Old Testament, and that's a little bit of a generalization, but it feels like the rest of the Old Testament is them trying to get back to the land God had given them. And Jesus is like, listen, that, the, the land, you're not going to have it anymore. He's saying the curse will be blessed. That's how bad these things are going to get. This is the reversal of the way things are. Because things were going pretty well for them. I mean, they were in occupied territory, but they were doing okay. The Romans were there, but they were doing okay. This is a turnaround, though. And by the way, in every gospel story, there's a turnaround. Normally, it's positive. But right now, Jesus is warning them that things are about to get pretty negative because of what's about to happen. While at the same time, things are actually going to get incredibly better because he's going to die for our sins and be resurrected and be, you know, powerful over death. So really, it's going to get great, but you don't understand what's happening. They're, he's just trying to warn them. And he even says this about the land that they love so much. People will beg the mountains, fall on us, and plead with the hills, bury us, like get rid of us. This could not get any worse. Jesus is painting a picture that is worse than what they were lamenting. Jesus is saying, you think this is bad? You have no idea. It's about to get a whole lot worse. We should ask a question, though. Is Jesus cursing them? And my answer to that is no. 
Jesus is pointing out the trajectory of their actions and how they will feel about them and experience them later. Jesus doesn't curse. That's not what he does. Jesus saves. That's what he does. Even then, they could have repented, but they were not going to. They were sealing their fate because they were choosing. So could they have repented right then? Well, the story we're going to study next week is the story of the thief on the cross, and the answer, that answers the question, right? They could have repented right then, but they weren't interested in it, and Jesus knew that. And then he kind of like twists the knife a little bit, and he says, for if these things were done when the tree is green, when things are good for you and you don't understand this, what do you think is going to happen when it's dry, when the tree is dying, when you have no hope? What do you think is going to happen? And he does this for emphasis, using the metaphor of a land and using the metaphor of the tree. He's saying that it's hard now, much harder when you don't feel like you're being blessed. So have you ever... Have you ever lamented like a daughter of Jerusalem? And what I mean is, have you ever lamented the wrong thing in your life? Have you ever missed the point? Because sometimes, again, it does feel like our faith journey is an adventure in missing the point. The good news is that God is still working on us. He doesn't leave us in ignorance. In fact, this is why He's calling out to the daughters of Jerusalem, hey, the compass is saying you're going in the wrong direction. Sometimes, sometimes a warning allows us to reevaluate. And God is still wanting us to understand the trajectory of our actions. And He still speaks to where we can be. You see, Jesus wants a reversal for you. And even in the life of a Christian, even if you've claimed this life for a long time, there are times for that reversal. There are times where God needs to redirect us. We need to have a warning. We need to hear something and re, you know, pay attention to where we are, reflect on where we've come from, and then reflect on where we're headed. Just because we've accepted Christ doesn't mean that God has stopped working on us and with us. Every warning in Scripture is a cautionary tale that we can learn from. You know, all of us in the trajectory have a Jerusalem that can be destroyed if we're not careful because of the choices that we make today. So what is your Jerusalem that you hold on to so dearly you don't even recognize it's being destroyed by the choices that you're making today? Why do you follow Jesus? Over the next six weeks after this, we're going we're gonna to study his words on the cross even unto his death. And they're probably words that you've heard before. We're not going to, you know, travel new ground. This is well-worn roads that we're going to be on. But I want you to look at it differently. I want you to look at it in two different perspectives. One, what is it saying to you, for you today? And what does it mean to follow Jesus for you? And the second thing is, what would it be like if you were hearing these words for the first time? And how would you explain it to someone? of why this story, this narrative matters so much to us. Why we, why we literally reconform our lives around this particular story. Why is this one so important when there's lots of other stories, lots of other faith traditions, or certainly no faith tradition that you could live life? Why does this one, why is this our organizing anchor point? I want you to think about that because we cannot simply roll through this life as Christians out of habit. And if this warning is anything for us, it's that what we do and what we think and what we say, it matters. Jesus on his way to his death was willing to stop and go, hey, check yourself. 
You don't even know what's happening. There's such a bigger story unfolding here. If God is participating in your life, if God is in the midst of this, not standing on the sidelines, I want you to take these questions seriously over the next few weeks. Because I don't want you to question why you follow Jesus. I don't want you to question why you're on this path and how he's placed you there and what he wants from you. But this is why we go back to scripture. This is why we reevaluate so we can see what God is doing. And we can see the larger picture that's unfolding even in the small words that Jesus says to those around him. Always excited to be on this journey with you. Always blessed that you'll come along, that you'll listen, that you'll open up scripture and share with us. So thank you for just being great and being willing to go further in your faith journey. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, thank you for, thank you for these words of warning. We don't always like those. We, we'd rather not know how fast we were going most of the time, but thanks for knocking on our window and, and asking us if we know. Help us to remember the journey that's gotten us here. Help us to understand the trajectory that you want for us. And Lord, most of all, thank you for, thank you for being the one that is worthy of studying, the one that's worthy of singing praises to, the one that is the organizing point in our lives. May that always be a choice that we make because of the grace and love that you have for us. We're so appreciative of you. And we just want to live our lives in humble gratitude. Lord, thank you for this community that you've brought together. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Pray these things in your holy name. In the name of Jesus, amen.